Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This week on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, my special guest is one of the leading voices on all things women's basketball, the collegiate level, the WNBA, the Olympics, whatever you need. She's a top analyst and an expert. She's amazing. She has amazing takes. She's not shy about sharing them. She is an even better person than she is analyst, and she's an outstanding analyst. She's coming up in a moment, but first, Darlene. You ready, sis? Let's run it. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Buckets, Boards, and Blocks is hosted by a former Georgetown Hoyer who likes nothing better than a well-executed fade screen and thinks DC ballers are the smartest. A lover of threes in transition, Monica McNutt. Darlene, thank you. You are so fantastic at that. I love that. All right, so let's end the suspense. LaChina Robinson is coming up in a few minutes, and she is just fantastic. A great conversation on the semifinals, the W in totality, and, of course, the finals. But first, game two between the Connecticut Sun and the Washington Mystics was in D.C. on Tuesday night. And I got to say hello to my sidekick and extraordinary producer, Bruce Bernstein. Big Bruce, what's up? Hey, you know, that was uh, that was kind of tough to watch last night because even though uh, I'm a Connecticut person and I'm happy to see the Sun do well, you know, you don't want to see somebody like, Elena Della, Deladon go down with an injury. I mean, that overshadowed everything, Monica. Facts. I, it, it, I was sitting on press row with my friends, my colleagues. Um, we got to get my buddy Troy Burton, who covers the Wizards on, on one of these, Troy Halliburton, rather, on one of these episodes down the road. And he's the first person I pointed out. He's like, where's Elena? And I was like, oh, she had to go to the bathroom. Like, just trying to be optimistic. She'll be back. And then she didn't come back. Um... And I know that for a fact, I was staring at the tunnel for a while, like hoping to see her. And you saw Ketsia Coleman, who's the outstanding PR person for the Mystics, running back and forth and talking to Holly Rowe, who was sitting courtside, obviously, for the broadcast. And it just did not look very good. And eventually, the media got the note that she was out with back spasms. I've never dealt with back spasms, Bruce. So obviously they can be very debilitating because she didn't return. And post-game, Coach Tebow said she was going to have to have an MRI. I've had some back issues myself recently. And I can tell you, when you look at the play that she ended up, you know, the, her last, you know, moment on the court there, you know, you could see she kind of got a little shove from the side. And it didn't, it just kind of looked like a whole lot of nothing. I mean, I, in my experience watching WNBA, especially the bigs, they pound each other. So contact is very common under the boards and that looked almost like a little like a little nothing but when it comes to backs you know just being on your feet sometimes is incredibly painful so to try and you know run up and down the court going up against these other you know great players uh that i'm sure the pain was had to be intense 
Yeah, no doubt about that. Otherwise, nothing would have stopped her from being on the floor. Now, the silver lining, based on how we roll on this show, the board in this situation <laughs> might be or is that game three is not until Sunday, although it's in Connecticut, but you hope that the extra couple of days in there provides her adequate time to recover. But literally, you talk about a series changing on a dime, potentially, that would be it. Well, you're you're so right. I mean, having those extra few days, I mean, maybe she'll be able to, you know, give them something. Maybe she'll be 85%. She can go out and try it. I'm sure she will if she feels that she can help the team and not really mess herself up too badly. Uh, but even if she doesn't play, now at least it gives Tebow time, Coach Tebow time to come up with plan B. It's like, all right, what are we going to do? Emma Mieseman had to play a lot of minutes last night. And she was great in the second and third quarter. But in the fourth quarter, you could kind of tell she was beyond her normal number of minutes. And and it showed out there. For sure. Uh, so I am a Washingtonian. I cover the Mystics here locally. They were my childhood team. But I would be remiss if we didn't give credit to a friend of this show, in fact, in John Quill Jones and the dominant performance that she had last night. 32 points, 18 rebounds. Um, nine of those, or nine rather, on both sides of the ball, offensive and defensive rebounds. I would sum it up with this statement, Bruce. Bored woman gets paid. <laughs> <laughs> or as or as Holly Rowe called her last night, the Bahamian beast. There it is. 30 to 32 and 18. She hit, you know, I was looking through the numbers. And, you know, the numbers sometimes can lie, but other times the numbers just absolutely can explain everything. And I think looking at her last night, it looked like she got every single offensive rebound that came off the boards the entire game. And you know what? She had more than the entire Mystics team. She had nine. They had six. So she really did get every offensive rebound last night, it seemed. It and, was uh, crazy. Yeah. And I mean, I'll tell you who I really enjoyed watching last night. Courtney Williams. I mean, she had 22. She had six dimes. She had zero turnovers and a ton of swag. I mean, they had her mic'd up. And I mean, she was, she was, I mean, it was, it was fun to watch. He's basically saying, well, that girl can't guard me and that girl can't guard me. And it was just great. I mean, you were there in person, so you maybe didn't catch that, but on TV, um, it, she was really fun to watch. So I enjoyed watching her in person as well, but I was following along on Twitter and I was actually very upset that I could not hear her mic'd up, but I did see one of my friends tweeted out that she told John Quill Jones that every rebound was hers and they were making a point to highlight the way she was speaking life into her teammates. Did you hear that? Yep, absolutely. I mean, look, somebody like that, I mean, you know, she is really such a general for those guys. I mean, you know, JJ is the big, you know, stud. And look, she was, I mean, she had a historic game in the finals. No one's ever had 32 and 18 in a WNBA finals game. So that's, you know, that's where the numbers kind of tell the truth. Uh, but Courtney is kind of like, she's like the, she reminds me a little bit of Avery Johnson when he played for the Spurs. Avery was like the little general, although he hates that nickname, but that's what they called him. And he was always buzzing in David Robinson's ear. And he used to tell me stories because we worked together. He's there. I used to say, 5-0, 5-0, you got to shoot the ball. You got to be more aggressive. And that's kind of what Courtney was doing a little bit with JJ last night. I love that. I, Avery Johnson is great. I had an opportunity to meet him at NABJ in Miami. He's dope. And I think she would appreciate that comparison. Oh, Fight. well, listen, you know, <laughs> Avery is just one of the most amazing friends that I've made over the years in this business. He is a remarkable individual. 
That's fantastic. That's fantastic. All right, so let's do this, though. Game three is Sunday. I don't have the time in front of me. 3.30, I believe, on ABC. Mohegan Sun is a tough place to play. Those Connecticut Sun fan, uh, as you know, in what could be argued as the basketball capital, come out for their basketball players, whether it's UConn or the uh, WNBA squad. If Elena Deladon cannot go, I did think the performance of Tiana Hawkins was huge yesterday. She had eight points in the first quarter that really kept the Mystics within that 10-point range as opposed to moments where you thought this thing might get out of hand. And then she hit some big-time shots. I love her in the two-man game because she can pick and pop. In fact, there were times in the fourth quarter where I thought Christy Tolliver missed her because she was in a little bit of hero mode, shall we say, Bruce? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, you know, when I was looking at all the minutes that Della Don didn't play last night, you know, she only played three and a half minutes. So mm-hmm. normally she'd be playing like 36. So I'm like, all right, who who played those other 33 minutes? Where did those minutes go? And Tiana Hawkins got the majority of them. She only played five minutes in the first game. She played 23 last night. And, and that 16 and six game, she really was. I agree with you. I mean, I would imagine that if if EDD's out of there on Sunday, you got to have Emma as your number one option. But Tiana looks like she kind of moves up to number two, don't you think? I would agree. Um, I, Tiana can space the floor, and she's a little bit more agile defensively to me than Emma Meeseman. I mean, JJ obviously was having a day, and it wasn't even as if Jean-Claude was making basketball moves so much as she was cleaning up the glass so much. But I did see Emma struggle, and I would struggle too. This is no shade on Emma at all. Alyssa Thomas coming downhill is like a locomotive. I mean, what are you going to do with that? I mean, she had a fantastic game as well. She's just so strong. And even though sometimes you might look at her, make a move, and think, "Mm, that's a little unorthodox, the bottom line is the ball finds the bottom of the net. 21 points, 12 rebounds, six offensive rebounds for Alyssa Thomas. So, but Alyssa had six offensive rebounds. She also had the same number as the Mystics whole team. Then we said JJ had nine. So Alyssa Thomas was just, you know, like she was kind of like beast 1A or whatever. I don't know. (laughs) I tell you what, though, Tebow will have to do some shuffling. Indeed, Kurt Miller is a fantastic coach. That team plays for him. You'll hear in our conversation a little later in the pod my thoughts on what this series will go to. But I think last night, we're looking at five. Yeah, that that's kind of what I thought at the beginning. But you know what? Um, you, if, you just hope it goes five and, and Della Don is in close to top form for game five because then we'll really know who's legit as the champ. Yeah, and plus that would be quite an awful stroke of luck for her last year not being 100% having dealt with that bone bruising. You heard Ariel Atkins after game one. This Mystic squad remembers last year very clearly and very vividly. Although I had an opportunity to talk to Ava Wallace, who's the beat reporter with the Mystics for the Post. And she said last year, and I remember being in the locker room post game last year because I was actually working on a piece about local female hoopers out of our area. They were disappointed, but I think they sort of saw the writing on the wall. Seattle was just... And the Mystics weren't at their best. This year, I think they fully expect to win. So does the Connecticut Sun, though, which is why we're probably going to have five very good games or three more to go, at least. So I don't know, Bruce. There's a lot to unpack. You always want to see players healthy. But like you said, injuries are kind of a tough part of the game. 
Well, we'll see. You know, everybody gets their rest in. Coaches have time to make their adjustments. Um, you know, like we said, I mean, uh, what happened to the Mystics last night was kind of like a body blow. But you know what? They were 26 and 8 this year. It's not like they don't know how to regroup. And oh, by the way, their bench last night did step up. It just wasn't quite enough to overcome it. Their bench had 52 points last night. So you know what? That's a team that can that can you know they have options. So let's you know let's hope for exciting games and an exciting series. I think we're gonna get that, Bruce, for sure. That was dope. <laughs> Guys, this guest this week is one of my favorite people in sports media. Period, especially covering the women's game. Um, she's just tremendous at not only her job, but she's and literally an incredible person, like probably, matter of fact, is a better person than she is broadcaster, which says a lot because she's an outstanding broadcaster. You know her well if you've covered or followed women's basketball. Her name is the one and only LaChina Robinson. LaChina, thanks for joining me. Monica, thank you for having me. I feel so special. Yay. Thank you Listen, for those kind words. You know, I, and I mean you. Every one of them, like, you know, I mean that from the bottom of my heart, but specifically, not just because I'm a fan of yours, a friend of yours, a mentee of yours and think you're awesome. You have had a front row seat all year to this crazy WNBA season that we've had that I think surprised a ton of people when early on the conversation was about how many big time names were out with injuries. Yes, um, that. I mean, early on, we kind of thought that that headline was going to dominate the season, right? It was like, okay, let's look at all the players we don't have. Uh, but I think that's been one of the fun parts about this particular WNBA season is it's allowed us to um, get an in-depth look at the next layer of stars uh, in this league, who's up and coming, who's ready to carry their team. And, um, you know, I, I think sometimes in – I'm grateful for the growth that we've had in, in media for, for WNBA, but I think there was once a time where people were so lazy, they weren't willing to go beyond the who is Sue Bird or Diana Taurasi or, you know, Tamika Catchings. But um, I've just been so pleased with the variety of players we've got to meet this year as a result of those injuries. And also for us to take a look forward at what the next, 10 and, and 20 years of the WNBA may look like. That is so, like, obviously I expect the league to continue to be around, but to have that conversation and to literally see the changing of the guard, it, I mean, it, it was mind-blowing. It was super exciting. Um, I just, I could not get enough of it personally. Yeah, I mean, and there were a, a lot of naysayers. Even, you know, internally in the WNBA, you would hear players like, okay, like, will this next generation be able to sustain the excitement that, you know, we're used to getting from the players that we're used to hearing about? It was like, okay, there's no LeBron James in the playoffs. Well, who's going to watch, right? And that was a real thing. Um, and so there's no Diane Tarazi. And I just feel like there's still a very high level of excitement behind what Elena Deladon's done or, you know, what the Jasmine Thomases of the world are doing. Uh, so just great storylines across the board. Uh, whether it's Liz Cambage or, uh, you know, Derricka Hamby shy there's just been so many amazing things happening in the playoffs that it's taken this dialogue and really moved it in, a, in another direction, in a positive direction where 
um, you know, no one wants to, to talk about injuries all year. And these players and these coaches have definitely given us a lot of exciting things to talk about. So on that note, we've had our awards have been announced. Elena Deladon, Nafisa Collar, De'Erica Hamby, just to name a few. That would be your MVP, your Rookie of the Year, and your Sixth Woman of the Year. But for you, sitting at so many different arenas, courtside, working alongside your fantastic partner in Pam Ward, what was one of the most pleasant surprises for you this season? Wow. Um, pleasant surprises. I really think the biggest surprise for me was the coaching. I mean, I knew we had great coaching in this league, but you take away some of the names that we've talked about all year that are out for various reasons, whether it's the Maya Moores of the world or uh, the Dianas or the Skylar Diggins or the Angel McCautries, whoever. And that's really when you get a get a, a really close look at, at the coaching in our league. And um, in particular, you know, like a Dan Hughes um, or, you know, Cheryl Reeve and what they were able to do without some, some key factors. Like, I, I just enjoyed it. Look what James Wade did. Like, I just saw, to me, the headline was coach of the year race is hot. <laughs> you know, like you named the MVP and, of the year and all of those different things, which felt like awards that were somewhat consensus. Um, some people may say that they thought Enrique had a chance to win Rookie of the Year. I knew it was going to be a slanted vote. Um, but Coach of the Year, for me, just told the story of, hey, we do have some missing players this league, but look at what these coaches can still do um, with the rosters that they have and what they are able to put on the floor with no Brianna Stewart and so on and so on. So, to me, that that became a, a big headline or something that I was just pleasantly pleased to watch unfold um, as the year went on. Has that always been there and we're just starting to take note of it because we did miss the names this year? Well, I think it depends on how you look at the coach of the year race. Like, I'm the kind of person that says the coach of the year is not necessarily the coach that wins the most games, right? Like, you could have easily – everyone could have given the award to Mike Tebow, right? And, and for different reasons. Yeah, Washington was on the front of everyone's mind as a contender, but what they did offensively was so impressive. Um, you know, it, it puts them in WNBA history and how efficient they were and how well they shared the ball, all those things. So, you could have easily voted for Mike Tebow – but I think what coach of the year at least has been for me is a coach that can do the most with the least. And this is a year where we've had to see more coaches do the most with the least than any year I can remember. Right. It was like, okay, when you can just give the ball to Brianna Stewart, let her go all day. That's one thing. But what about when you have to change your strategy? What about when you have to go back to the drawing board? What about when you have, no more Liz Cambage because even, you know, Dallas was competitive. But what about when you're going to be without Candace Parker for an extended time? What can the L.A. Sparks do? So there's so many layers to that conversation. But people don't realize how, like, short the WNBA season is. And I know Derek Fisher spoke to some of this. But it's like the WNBA season is only 34 games long. And when you count in players that arrive late because – you know, they've got overseas commitments or you lose a player for 11 games, which ends up being one third of your season in the WNBA, you know, not so much on the NBA season, whether the one eighth or something like that. And so um, all the changes and tweaks with limited practice time, you know, in a three or four month season, I, I just think we got a closer look 
at what these coaches are, um, you know, uh, just the job they have to do with, with less time, with sometimes less players, with more injuries because of the, the yearly schedule of WNBA teams. So I, I do think that this particular year lends itself to us appreciating the coaches of this league even more. James Wade doing less with more nearly into the next round of the playoffs outside of Dierica Hamby's heroics, definitely deserving of that award. Um, and just, I, I agree with your assessment on that. And I think the, looking at it that way really understands how coaches get into their bag. But on the coaching conversation, LaChina, I have to ask you, my friend, the expert, um, you mentioned this particular coach. Derek Fisher and his decision with a former MVP in Candace Parker uh, with the series on the line, essentially, versus the Connecticut Sun. What was your takeaway on the 11 minutes for CP3? Uh, devastated. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry. Um, devastated, to, to, to say the least. Um, <laughs> once I learned of everything that happened. Now, keep in mind, I, I didn't cover that series, and I was busy, you know, off. We were, Cam and I were off in our own land doing our own thing, uh, you know, with, with Vegas and Washington. So I, I wasn't necessarily on top of this whole storyline and didn't see every moment of the game and all that kind of stuff. But I do know that Candace Parker is a two-time MVP, and I know that she's a champion, and I know that, um, you know, she has struggled some with her health, but she said she was healthy, you know, mentally, physically, all that stuff. And so if you have an able-bodied Candace Parker in an elimination game, and I think that is where uh, there was probably more disappointment, is this is, this is going to be the game that's going to potentially end your season. I was definitely shocked that she only played 11 minutes. Like, definitely shocked. And, you know, I, I, I appreciated Brian Agler's comments when he was in studio because he did preface that by saying nobody really knows what all goes in, like what's happening in practice and behind the scenes and stuff like that. Like, we're getting, a, we're getting to see what we think, right? And you played, Monica, like, there's so much more that goes into a player-coach relationship. There's so much more that goes into the role of a particular player on their team in that moment. There's so many other conversations that are being had that we're not privy to. So not claiming to know even one-tenth. But to me, it is just inconceivable that Candace Parker was benched, essentially. Like, it, it doesn't even really register with me in an elimination game that she would not be a player that you would want to go to war with you until the final buzzer. And Derek Fisher has been outstanding with us all year. You know, like I've enjoyed getting to know him. He has, you know, he definitely shows um, a growth in his knowledge. Like you can tell he was really working to get to know the WNBA and to, to build a relationship with his players. But in that moment, I just – I don't know how Candace Parker's not on the floor. I just – if you want to win, I've seen her put teams on her back. I, I've seen her will her team, you know, from deficits back into games. I mean, we've all seen what she can do. She'll go, she'll go down as one of the greatest players to, to ever play. And I was shocked and, and, like, kind of blown away that she wasn't on the court. 
I echo that sentiment, but I actually was watching that one, preparing to watch you guys with the next one. And we're stuck on Candace in the 11, but honestly, the last like six minutes-ish, it seemed as if he was he pulled the plug completely. I mean, Chelsea Gray wasn't on the floor. The Gumake sisters weren't on the floor. Um, I was like, we're doing this a little early, are we not? In fact, Rebecca and Ryan actually mentioned it on the broadcast, but we are just observers. And I'm glad to hear you say that the hire of Derek Fisher has been, or he has demonstrated diligence and sincerity because you probably heard Jackie McMullen, who was another voice in the media that was well-respected, sort of questioned whether this was one of those ex-Laker type of things. So for you to say that he's taken this role seriously and maybe just choked in that moment makes me feel a little bit better because Jackie definitely had me thinking. Well, yeah, and don't get me wrong. Like, I had some issues with the hiring process when it happened because I know a lot of um, WNBA assistants and former players that would have loved an opportunity to even get an interview um, and, you know, I have a ton of respect for Penny Toller, but from what I've read, again, it's secondhand information that it was a very short process that there weren't very many people interviewed. And I'm like, wow, you know, especially in a sport where, um, what, 80 plus percent of the players are women of color. Um, I'm wondering where all the former players are. Where are their opportunities to coach? And so anytime there's a new hire, I'm always going to look at that aspect of things. So, yeah, I know I, I am not saying by any stretch that I don't agree with Jackie. Like, hmm, how did we get here? Because I had those questions. But from my seat and my interactions with, with Derek, which, you know, we had probably had them two or three games this year, uh, he was very pleasant, very forthcoming with information. Um, you know, we're not in their practices every day. But as far as just from what I can see, he, he was engaged, you know, wanted his team to be successful had bought into, you know, what, everything that was expected. But Vincent Candace Parker, whew, I just like to know how you recover from that. That's my question is how do you move on from that from here? Mm. And I don't know the answer to that. We, I don't have the answer for that one either, Sway. We will, we will have to <laughs> and see. You actually bring up another great point in the China, and I know you are always one that are championing, championing opportunities for female head coaches, particularly women of color, whether it be on the collegiate level or the professional level. I know in your game, actually, when you were in Vegas with uh, the Mystics, I don't know if this was game four, maybe it was game four, LeBron and all those guys show up. And we love to see the support from the NBA side. But is the W still in a place where it's looking at the NBA for validation? Like, what are you, what is your assessment on that relationship? Whether it be players that sort of make headlines for being at games or ex-players who end up in these coaching positions? Yeah, there's a fine line there because I think there was a time where that dialogue between the NBA and WNBA or that support was kind of forced, uh, where it, it seemed like some of the, commercials and things where you have the NBA player saying, Hey, I love a Dana Deladon. While I get that and I understand what you're trying to accomplish, you're trying to capture some of the NBA audience, which are clearly basketball fans. And to me, basketball fans are basketball fans. However, um, 
I just think when you let it happen authentically, like LeBron, nobody told LeBron to come to the game. You know, like those guys respect what the women do. So they're going to come to the game because they like basketball and they enjoy watching these women play. Um, so there's a fine line in that where I think letting it happen authentically in terms of the player support, the, w- the NBA players support of WNBA players, like that, that's going to happen. Um, but on the flip side of that with the coaching thing, I am a little concerned about the trend, to be honest with you, where, um, you know, some of the conversations that we've had with coaches that have left the women's side to get into the men's, it wasn't always just strictly, oh, I've always wanted to coach in the NBA. This is, this is my opportunity. While, yeah, that is the headline, I definitely got the feel or felt like um, had the right opportunity come along on the women's side or if they had gotten an opportunity or been able to get their foot in the door in the women's side, that maybe they hadn't gone to the NBA. And we don't want to lose great coaches in women's basketball, whether you're a former player, a man, a woman, whatever. We don't want to lose great coaches. Uh, And so I'm a little selfish in that, in that, (laughs) you know, I I love women's basketball. I mean, I've worked on the NBA. I've enjoyed it, but I've committed my career to growing this game on the college and professional level. So while I'm happy for those individuals and I'm happy for the millions of girls that now can look at the sideline and say, I want to be Neil Ivey or I want to be Lindsay Gottlieb, you know, a small part of me is like wanting to make sure that at least when those coaches do make that move, that they felt fully embraced and fully appreciated on the women's basketball side, that we did them justice in providing them all the opportunities in our game. Did we, did we give Teresa Weatherspoon every chance to be successful in our game uh, before she felt, you know, like she wanted to go elsewhere. And again, everyone's story is different, but I will say I've been a little selfish when having that dialogue where I'm like, I'd like to keep more of these great coaches or Kara Lawson and an analyst seat. Like I love to, to keep all of these people in our game because they've done so many great things for it. And I feel like there's a synergy and an energy, but more, more coaches will come up behind them and, and we'll continue to grow. And now these women will open up opportunities on the NBA side, but I, I do get a little spiteful and a little selfish and I'm not afraid to say that. I appreciate your honesty. And if anyone is allowed to have that opinion, it is certainly you. <laughs> Thank you, Monica. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's, I do think, I wonder who was the first to move over that kind of caught my attention. Was it was Kara the first one or was Swin the first one this summer that took an NBA position? It might have been. I feel like it was Swin. I think Swin was first. Yeah, I believe. Um, and I don't. I love my dad. My dad is in his sixties, and um, he raised me on the WNBA. Right, like watching the dynasty of the Houston Comets. And I remember him saying to me, "Why? Why? Like, why does she want to do that?" And I was like, "Well, why not, Dad? Like, <laughs> I don't understand." Um, and so. For me, it has been a, an ongoing conversation. And my dad is very pro-woman. He just, you know, was raised in a different time. And I think he gets it now. Um, but I have noticed, even in the media space, for whatever reason, as women, we look at the guys. And yeah, the NBA has a deeper history and a larger audience, as this is something that we want to get to. But very rarely, in fact, I want to say last year during the playoffs was the first time that I saw a men's analyst 
talking about the WNBA. I believe it was Steve Smith. And I think Karan Butler may have done it for NBA TV this year. But that sort of duality that the women pre present and, and being able to cover both, as you have done, as Doris Burke did before she moved over full time, as Kara Lawson has done, only seems to be a woman thing. And I, so I, for me, I'd love to see the fluidity, um, the ability to go back and forth out of respected men's voices as well. Yeah, that's a really good point um, and one we probably haven't thought enough about. I will say that I think NBA TV is the one space where I at least see men challenged to do that. Like, I mean, I used to sit in the studio with Steve Smith and Dennis Scott, you know, during rap shows after playoffs. And, you know, those guys, they knew their stuff, you know, at least well enough to talk about it. They've watched the league for years. They genuinely, you know, try to support it to whatever degree they can. Um, but that's a good question. I mean, that duality consistently does not exist on the media side. Um, I think it's good when there's crossover just because it, it adds to the, to the breadth of which you can discuss the NBA or WNBA, um, you know, when you get to see both and, and get to see different players. And, and I know some people, like, don't like when you say, oh, Rihanna Stewart reminds you of Kevin Durant. Well, she does. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like – as the women's history is growing and then we have more references, you know, that, that we can make to other players in the WNBA or, you know, his history will, will start to tell the story of our WNBA players better, but I, I'm okay with the NBA WNBA crossover. Um, basketball is basketball. And so, um, yeah, I agree with you that it would be good to see more of that. Well, if we keep having Elena Deladon have historic years, then it'll soon be, I have no doubt, an NBA reference that this dude is like Elena Deladon. And that I will live oh, for. Oh, my God. I'm with you. Girl, can we have that happen like today? <laughs> it is not too far-fetched. But speaking of Elena Deladon and the series that you called the semifinals, the Mystics and the Aces and your crew got a couple of really great finishes. And then Kim Adams was on the sideline for you guys for the soundbite that went viral post-game. What? Good time. Liz Cambage, who we love, attitude, sass, energy, bring it all, walking into the arena in her own T-shirt of her picture on the body issue. After one win for the Las Vegas Aces, in general, what was your initial feeling going into that series? Were you at all surprised by the results? So the one thing about Vegas that was a pleasant surprise is that, you know, most coaches will tell you that they want their team to be playing their best basketball at the end of the year because that's going to give you momentum going into the playoffs. Well, Vegas was not playing their best basketball at the end of the regular season, period, right? There's no way to slice it. Every team hits that wall, but Vegas hit it at what I would say is the least opportune time. Um, you know, they had a rough stretch and they kind of got tired. You know, you talk to the team, these are all the different things that happened. But at the end of the day, I, I did not see Vegas having the type of growth in the playoffs that they had. Like, teams don't usually grow leaps and bounds in the playoffs. You know, you grow leaps and bounds in the season, it pays off in the playoffs. But it was like they got better every game. And it started with the miracle shot by Dierica Hamby. You know, you, you think your season's over, and all of a sudden your teammate hits this unbelievable shot. You believe it's destiny. Well, then you start drinking the juice. So there was this synergy, this energy, this confidence uh, that came together for Vegas at the right time. So I never felt like they were really out of any of the games, honestly. 
Like, when you think about their series with the Mystics, they're fairly close games. You know, some of them might have got away down the stretch, but you think about the last second shot by Plum, you think about, you know, this, this last game where it was a possession five, possession game, game four. And so um, I was impressed with what Vegas did. And, and my thing was they made Washington find a better version of themselves, which is why I think Washington won, um, you know, was able to pull out game one. I, I credit Vegas and how they prepared them. So we talked about, LA and how it looked they, like they kind of laid down at the end and didn't fight in game in game three, you know, have their best players on the floor. And I don't know how much that prepares Connecticut. Now, Connecticut was playing well in their own right, but I definitely think that Washington got better because Vegas really made them fight for every inch. They were so physical. They were physically and emotionally draining. Um, and so it was a great series. And I honestly think that Washington reaped the benefits of that. And we'll see a, a more confident and a Washington team that has a little bit more depth because of that series in Vegas. I am inclined to agree with you on that one. Now, granted, podcast BBB pod listeners, we're recording this pod on Monday ahead of game two. But I do want to know, do you think that Vegas has just prepared the Mystics in a way that the sun just might not be able to touch? Like, what's your prediction for the final series? Oh, no, not at all. I think Connecticut's ready for a, a knockdown drag out. You know, like, the thing you love about Connecticut is they're so confident. They're young. Like, and, and that might have hit them experience-wise in that first quarter when Washington scored 30 on them. It was like, oh, we're in the finals. But then they adjusted. Like, I like them. I like their their courage. I just, I just they have nothing to lose. Like they said, nobody really thought they could be there and all that, which for the record, I let them use me on the disrespect track, but I actually was somebody who <laughs> supported them when they started playing together. No, I uh, played better. I was not supporting them in that seven-game losing streak, and I'll go to my grave being okay with that. But anyway, um, no, I don't think Connecticut's going to lay down by any stretch. I, I think this is going to be a five-game series. I think both teams are going to win two games on their home court and that will get a great game five. Okay. I, okay. <laughs> you, I, I mean, I had an opportunity to get Connecticut. I think they are fantastic. And at the risk of being in the disrespect track of the future, I, I just kind of feel like the Mystics are going to pull this one out. I don't, I don't know if it goes five. Lachana. I'm not, I think after game one, while Connecticut for me showed tremendous fight, I just think the Mystics are clicking on another level. Yeah, I mean, I see that, but I still see vulnerability. I mean, they were up 17 points. Yeah. And had they not lost sight of Ariel Atkins in the corner, this might have been – we might be having a different conversation. Like, it's a – it's a, I mean, this is the finals you want to be a part of, right, where it's one possession makes a difference in a game. And while Washington, I agree, has – all the advantages from home court to experience to the MVP. It's just something about the scrappiness of Connecticut that I can't let go of. Um, they're fighters. And um, I think I, I can see them winning two games in the series. I can definitely see them winning two games and pushing it to five. Can you see them winning the series? 
not on Washington's home court. Like it's going to take a miracle for that to happen. Okay. That that's where to me this shift because as you know, Connecticut has been so good all year at home, but they've been questionable on the road for for the most part. Um, you know, Long Beach to me was not a true home court for for the Sparks. Like had they been in the Staples Center, I mm. I think that would have been a different game three. You know, that, like that's just my opinion and, and how how great they were at home. So, that's true, yeah, true road playoff games are not easy. <laughs> not yeah. easy. Yeah, I but, will. Um, go ahead. I will say it's just to, literally the fact that the finals were Connecticut and the Mystics. It, it was kind of a, a mind work because I remember being at Sports and Entertainment Arena early in the season, right after Laisha Clarendon goes down and the Sun just got whopped. And so I'm like, wow, yeah. you talk about a team that has sustained some adversity, powered through, and really started to click at the right time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that they went through a rough spell. And and that's a team to me. Like, I don't I don't know if you guys saw the statistics that we kept putting up during um the semifinals, and obviously this has changed some since the playoffs, but Washington hadn't really won any close games this year. Mm-hmm. They were blowing everybody out, and I think they had—they didn't win any of the games that were five points or closer um, during the regular season. And Connecticut, on the other hand, the team that lost Lazy Clarendon, went through an identity crisis, kind of lost themselves, had to come back. To me, those teams are kind of battle-tested, like you can knock them, but they're like, okay, been here. And so in those close-game situations, and now Washington has kind of changed that conversation with the way they, they've won some close ones in the playoffs, but I do think that it's the resilience of Connecticut. I mean, I, you know who they remind me of, and I want, I hope I'm getting this year right. They remind me of the 2012 um, Indiana Fever that won a championship with Tamika Catching. They were playing the mighty Minnesota Lynx, and it was the scrappy defense of like Brian January on Simone Augustus. And I mean, that series coming in, they're like, okay, Indy is going to have to really. And they hadn't kind of just barely got there, you know? Um, and and so, you know, they had to defy the odds to kind of get there. And so I, I just remember that. And after that series, I was like, you know, you just never know. And, and I just remember thinking and seeing some of that Indiana fever scrappiness and toughness and all of that in the Connecticut sun in some stretches this year. And if they could find that, they got a shot, Monica. I, I agree with you 100%. That is super high praise for this group to be compared to that one. We had Howard Megdahl on, and he had endless praise to give Tamika Catchings for the work that she did with that group and how, you know, as she moves forward in her new role with the Fever, that she hopes to pattern that the new team after that team. So that's a big deal to compare them to that group. So if you see all that, I'm going to have to defer to you. <laughs> yeah, I see some scrappiness. I see some fearlessness now. You know, Tamika Catchings is one of a kind. But, um, yeah, I, I really – I and when, and when Connecticut puts their mind to it, you know, as, as well as the Mystics play, and I've also seen the Mystics vulnerable, you know, in the last series. So, um, even if it's just for a second or a few possessions, like you start to learn what kind of things uh, make a team vulnerable. And so, I, I think Connecticut has got some of those characteristics of a scrappy Indiana Fever team from that year, of a physical Las Vegas Aces team, um, you know that could that could 
play in their favor. Hmm. Well, I agree with you 100% that it is the series that you want to watch. Indeed, um, culmination of the two teams with the best records, as it should be. Lots of star power in that one. For me locally, shout out to all my local chicks in it. Jazz Thomas, John Quill Jones, Alyssa Thomas went to Maryland. And then, of course, the Mystics are the team I grew up on as a youngster. So at this point in the pod, LaChina, this is how we wrap. The name of the podcast is Buckets, Boards, and Blocks. I just need you to give me one of those. Now, allow me to give you a definition on each. A bucket, the bucket is your A++ thing. You want more of this in the WNBA and women's basketball period, whether it's the W or college basketball. The board is a rebound, a silver lining thing. Maybe at first glance, you don't love it, but there's something redeeming about it. And then the block is the thing that you would just want to get out of here. I don't want any more of that. Get that out of here. It's trash. We don't need all three unless you want to give all three. We just need one good one and your explanation on why. Something I want to see more of. Oh, um, something I'd love to see is just um, all the different and creative ways we've seen the the W cover this year. Um, Like, you know, even the WNBA marketing team, they came up with the, um, what's it called, the game they were playing where they were all kind of at a table together? Uh Uh-oh, I missed that one. um, Oh, did you? Okay, so they had this thing where they they put like four or five different members of WNBA teams at a table and they had them like ask each other these questions on a card. And I hate that I can't think of the name of it. Sorry, there's always over here um, right now. But basically they they would ask each other questions about them. And it was one of the most engaging things that I've seen from a marketing standpoint comes from the WNBA. But it was just, that's one example of, how we've seen the league covered differently. Like I love what Women's Slam is doing with, you know, just the way they covered it from their social accounts this this year. Um, is it Camille that runs that? I'm trying to think. I always forget people's names. Okay, good. Um, so, you know, I love what she's doing. Or even like the Ben Doles of the world who it gets into the X and O's and does a lot of telestration of plays. I just like the variety of ways we're seeing WNBA covered. Or Liz Cambage, you know, um, on the body issue. I'm here for that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just I'm just excited about the growth, you know, what you're doing, Monica, with your podcast and your platform. So I'm just excited about all the different ways that we can now take in the players, their personalities, um, and different aspects of the game, and hopefully that continues to grow. Um, what I'm not here for, I, I, I need something on this block one. I'm just trying okay. to think of what it is. Um, I'm just not here for women of color who have played the WNBA not getting opportunities. Like, I think Toki Chapman was the last woman of color who's the head coach in the WNBA. Now, don't get in my mentions about, oh, everybody deserves a fair chance. I'm there with you. Yes, everyone deserves a shot, and no one should be chosen because they're a man or woman or just a person of different color. However, consideration is necessary, especially if a player has put in their blood, sweat, and tears and, you know, building the league and played as a player. You know, we talk about the salaries now. Well, think about what Vicki Johnson was getting paid back in the day or Todd McWilliams Franklin or, you know, some of these other players that to, uh, or former players that, to me, should be up next in, in coaching positions. So um, I'm here for the growth in that area. And I think the 80-plus the percent of WNBA players that are women of color need to see women in leadership positions in a league where they feel like they can aspire 
or they can get an opportunity. Look at what, you know, Penny Toller has done at GM. You know, some of the success we've seen at former players, I would just like to see more of them or some kind of pipeline. And I know there's an NBA program and they're working on some different things, but just more of a direct pipeline um, for former players to take more prominent positions, both in the league office or on coaching staff for different WNBA teams. You know, Bill Lambeer does a great job of that. Um, I just think we need to see more of that in the WNBA. I like it. Now, was, I don't remember rebound, so I guess I'll leave that one out. Now, I was never really a great rebounder, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I was decent, but I wasn't no Monica McNutt now. Girl, you know, <laughs> in the floor. Listen, I love that, though. I agree with you 100%. A bucket is the expanding coverage. Um, fans sort of demanding and outlets acknowledging that they no longer can just kind of put women's sports to the side. I love the creativity. Camille Bukeda at W Slam is doing a fantastic job, as is our girl Ari Ivory with the We Are Jayla account with Bleacher Report. I mean, so many different people that we could shout out there. But I do want to follow up on your block, though, LaChina. I agree. Representation matters, and it is important to see women that look like you in positions that you may want to hold. But who maybe are some top names that come to mind in terms of women that are done playing that want to get into that space? Because I think sometimes we don't know how many available and interested former players there are to move into that space. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked that because, um, you know, I think that having the pipeline or having, you know, a knowledge of who's out there or who may be next um, is an important step. And like I said, Vicki Johnson is somebody that comes right to mind. Teresa Weatherspoon has now moved on, but she would have been another name that I would have put in there. Bridget Pettis has been coaching as an assistant for a long time. The, the, the list of, of, I mean, Chastity Melvin was out there for a while. I think she just took a coaching job somewhere else, but she was someone who, you know, was had coached in the G League and was growing her profile. And I'm not sure if she ever got an opportunity um, not a former player, but Shelly Patterson of Minnesota is someone who would be on my short list um, of people. But, I mean, now that we're seeing so much, even some crossover from the college side, I mean, my list could go forever. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of college assistant coaches or even head coaches that I don't know, you know, could be great fits on the WNBA side who used to play in the league. Um, you know, I mean, we just lost Miel Ivy, but you know, she would have been somebody that said, wow, Indiana Fever, she used to play for them. She'd be a great head coach. So, um, you know, just players like that. I mean, that's just off the top of my head. But, you know, I don't know how long it took Lucia Brown to get her opportunity with Las Vegas, probably too long. Um, you know, but just being more cognizant, I'm excited to see, because I think that's something that Kathy Engelbert has even talked about, is she is very passionate as the new commissioner of showing – the current players, what all their opportunities are when they're done. And so I'm here for that. And um, those are just a few names. And I know I've missed a ton of people, but those are a few that stand out to me that should be at the top of everyone's list. No, I mean, we just wanted a few. And I know for me, did Chassie Melvin played when there was a WNBA team in Cleveland, right? She did. Yeah, so she I mean, did. And also played in Charlotte. Yep. I remember Vicki Johnson. I mean, I, I would be all for that. I mean, when you guys had Cynthia Cooper and Cheryl Swoops join you on the ESPN broadcast, I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Like, look at this. And those are another two. I mean, what about Swoops? You know, like, I don't know what Swoops doing right now, but, you know, I just think, and oftentimes what happens with women in general is we never get that next chance. We never get that next opportunity. Amber stops. you know, like, nobody wanted her to take Diamond, and she took Diamond. And now look at what's happening in Chicago. You know, mm-hmm. like, 
she didn't get a really chance, in my opinion, to develop that that organization. Now she's not a former player, but she's a, a woman of color who has great history, um, you know, with women's basketball, coached under Coach Summit. So just continuing to give these women a chance and an opportunity, I'm, I'm very, very passionate about because you and I both walk into gyms all the time, whether it's the college level or the WBA with these women of color who are last on the list when it comes to equal pay um, in the world. And we know how important it was for us to mm-hmm. see the Robin Roberts and so on. So I'm on my, I'm on my rant right now, but that, that's pretty much where I am. Listen, I support this soapbox. You could stay as long as you like. I will also be echoing these sentiments because it is so important that we are mindful of these things. And we had Nancy Lieberman on the pod and she talked about earning or learning, earning and returning. And so as you've done with rising media stars, like it's important to open a door behind you and to have these conversations in ways that are meaningful. Absolutely. And you continue to do everything you're doing. You are just so impressive and so professional, everything you do. And you bring your own little style to, you know, your knowledge and how smart you are and how brilliant and and beautiful and bold and all of that. So you're doing it in your own right. Continue to open doors. And I just love everything you're doing out here. Keep doing your thing. And thank you for having me. Literally, you know that like part of this wouldn't be possible without you. So thank you, sis. Lord, girl, bye. God got you. Look, it ain't got nothing to do with me. That's all him. <laughs> Definitely been one of my guardian angels. Robinson, outstanding women's hoop analyst for ESPN, creator of the Rising Media Stars, just all around fantastic general person. Thank you so much for joining us on Buckets, Boards, and Blocks, my friend. Thanks for having me, Monica. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thank you so much. I don't know if you guys could hear the love, but I literally love that woman. Thank you so much to LaChina Robinson for being, one, so generous with her time. It's a super busy time of year for her. And two, so honest and candid. I mean, that's what I hope to have on these conversations on BBB Pod. All right. And of course, we can never close out the pod without thanking my loyal sidekick and producer, Bruce Bernstein, for all of his contributions, for making sure we got that good conversation kicked off about game two. My fantastic editor extraordinaire, Ben Wolfen, who makes sure we all sound fantastic and puts it all together. Please, please, please make sure you check out other Pure Hoops media shows. We got The Mike Wise Show that drops every Monday and he's got A-list guests. Catch and Shoot is here every Wednesday. And the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman drops every Friday. And as the NBA season is rapidly approaching, you want to make sure you tune back in to BJ. You know, he got gems for days on the league, including from when he was playing and the way the league is playing now. Of course, I'll be back with a new edition of Buckets, Boards, and Blocks every Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us. You listening means the world to both me and Bruce and the whole Pure Hoops team. Until next time, enjoy your hoops. Buckets, Boards and Blocks with Monica McNutt has been a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 